The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. Joseph Pierce and I are here from Ave Maria, Florida. Joining us, or we joining her, uh, Vivian Dudrow in San Francisco. We continue our discussion of this extraordinary book, The Spirit of Liturgy by Joseph Cardinal Rasker, who became Pope Benedict. And we began the last session with introduction, and then we started part one, which was labeled The Essence of the Liturgy. And this is a, a, a big sign, a big red sign when something by Cardinal Rasser is expressed, because for him, Vaisen, the nature of the thing, essence of the thing, that's what he's always going for. And we, we, we took chapter one, Liturgy and Life, in which he begins with the Exodus, Moses going to the Pharaoh and uh, asking him to let his people go to worship in the desert, which I always thought was a pretext. But it turns out, as Rasinger sees it, that was actually the real reason they were let go anyway to develop a people that had a threefold rule of life. They had the liturgical rules, the rules for social interaction, and then the rules for personal morality. And all these work together. Uh, all three must be together interacting, and that's why he calls his chapter Liturgy in Life. We moved on to the second chapter, Liturgy, Cosmos, History. And we're going to try continuing what we did last week where I'll be the minder, so to speak, for this book. And I'll go through this chapter with a few quotes showing the kind of the, the articulation of this chapter, the, the cardinal points, the hinge points. And then Vivian and Joseph, they can comment during that, of course, but we'll save additional quotes or overall comments until the end. So let's jump into chapter two. Uh, and my pages are off of yours by uh, 14, uh, four, wait, 14 yeah. 24 to 38, 14. So this is on page 38 or page 24, if you got my old version of this. New paragraph at the top. It is a widely accepted opinion in modern theology that in the so-called nature religions, as well as in the non-theistic higher religions, cult is focused on the cosmos. While in the Old Testament in Christianity, the orientation is toward history. So he's showing that there's a distinction here, or maybe a separation even. It looks as if Christianity and Judaism, too, are historical religions, where the others are more cosmic religions. And there's something to that, as we saw Joseph and I are teaching Chesterton's Everlasting Man, that uh, before the Jews and before Christ, generally history, both in West and East, was considered as a cycle, you know, an eternal recurrence not a beginning, middle, and end like we have in now the Western mind, which comes from 
Judeo-Christian philosophy. So in this chapter, he's going to show that, no, the liturgy of the church combines both the cosmic and the historical. So now at the bottom of that first paragraph, he says, <clears throat> the faith in redemption cannot be separated from faith in the creator. In this book, we shall discover just how important this question is, even for the apparent externals of the churchical celebration. And that is uh, going to be a theme will come up later, that our prayer is oriented towards the crucifix, the cross, that's the historical event, and the East, which is both historical event, that is to say, the sun rising represents uh, Christ rising, uh, and it brings the liturgy into the whole cosmos. So the next paragraph, three, three lines into it, the worship of the gods is never just a kind of act of socialization on the part of the community. The affirmation through symbols of a social cohesion. Now he's making the statements, he's gonna develop them later. Uh, this idea of us facing each other and building a community, that's very secondary to the idea of liturgy, which is worship. On the next page, uh, two-thirds of the way down. Creation moves toward the Sabbath, to the day on which man and the whole world created order participates in God's rest. So you know the story of creation. In six days, God creates the world. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he rests. And creation is moving toward that rest. He's saying, next page, about six lines down, the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant between God and man. It sums up the, here we go, inward essence of the covenant, the Sabbath does. If this is so, then we can now define the intention of the account of creation as follows. This is, this is very fundamental here. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant, the love story of God and man. Next page, two-thirds down, repeats that. Creation looks toward the covenant, but the covenant completes creation. It does not simply exist along with it. Now, if worship, rightly understood, is the soul of the covenant, then it is not only, not only saves mankind, but it's also meant to draw the whole reality into communion with God. So again, he's, he's talking about the Christian liturgy as record, recording historical matter salvation, but it, it's the fulfillment and completion of creation. Next paragraph, he says, what is worship? italicized is. What happens when we worship? In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is the concept that has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstandings. The common view, therefore one of these misunderstandings, is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. This very important part of this book and this, in this chapter, so on the next page, three, four lines down, he asks the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? A few more lines. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists, according to the fathers, in fidelity to, public, to biblical thought, in the union of man and creation with God. That's what sacrifice is. Latin sacrifice, sacrum, means holy. Facere means to make, to make holy. What is to make holy? That... God, will see later in this chapter, that as God has come to us, we bring the world back to him. Here we're the middle of the page. That is why St. Augustine could say that the true sacrifice, in quotes, is the civitas Dei, the city of God. That is, 
love transformed mankind, the divinization of creation and the surrender of all things to God, God all in all. That is the purpose of the world. That is the essence of sacrifice and worship. In the next paragraph, and so we can now say that the goal of worship and the goal of creation as a whole are one and the same, divinization, a world of freedom and love. But this means that the historical makes its appearance in the cosmos. Let's pause here and not go to the end of the chapter, but I mean, you want to discuss that at all or make some comments on that or ask questions about it? Well, I've got to at least defer to Vivian in the first instance to show that I have a, a little bit of the gentlemanly in me. I just love this expression, love transformed mankind. Yeah. yeah, and That's what this is all that. about. Yeah, and just below that, where we, where we, where is it? Yeah, the basically divinization is a world of freedom and love. And there's the paradox there, of course, because, you know, love requires the sacrifice of oneself, but it's only through that sacrifice of oneself we attain true freedom. If, if the failure to do so makes us addicts, right? Uh, slaves. So uh, there's, a, there's a paradox there, which is, which is counterintuitive, at least from a worldly perspective. And you but need so freedom. He's talking about sacrifice as divinization and bringing the creation back to God, we'll see in a moment. But if we take this sacrifice not in the liturgical sense of an animal being slaughtered or so on, uh, in common sense, but as, as you say in love, where a person gives himself to another, but to do that, you've got to let go of yourself. That's a sacrifice. So how does that idea fit with what he's saying here? I mean, and you how need, does that divinize you by letting go? And you need freedom to do that. If you yeah, weren't free, you wouldn't be able to do that. But of but course, but it's that great paradox, you know, of, of, of Edmund Burke's liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed. In other words, the refusal to to make that self-giving, to make that sacrifice, which is a limitation on our freedom in one sense, right? Um, a, a, a refusal to do that actually makes us slaves. We actually be, we, we, we're no longer able to love to commune with others. We become uh, self imprisoned, right? Imprisoned within our ego. So uh, the, the, the only way we can attain freedom is by an, a, an act of self limitation, and a, and a refusal to do that actually makes us much more limited than we would be if we didn't refuse. Well, I mean, is not choosing self an act of your freedom? Yes, but it's a freedom that leads to slavery. That's the whole point: is that you you, you can choose that freedom. Because anyway, there has to be freedom, so we do have to the freedom to choose or not choose. But the one choice leads to self-imprisonment and the other one leads to liberation. But they both require right. a limitation, right? But his point here seems to be that, you know, that the idea of sacrifice as a destruction or a giving up is a misunderstanding. It's really a making holy, bringing back to God, a divinization. So I'm, I'm still not quite seeing how the two fit the idea of, self-sacrifice in love of another and sacrifice in worship where you are trying to bring the world back to God. I, I guess, I guess, I suppose that you're trying to bring the world back to God. You, you, you've got to go outside yourself right. and, and deny yourself, so to speak. Right. But the denial okay. of yourself is not the destruction of yourself. So it's not right. destruction, right? It's okay. actually renewal. Vivian, anything? Well, we do no. use this expression death to self. I mean, there is, a dying involved in giving oneself to God and to the other, but it's a death in order to have real life. 
Well, okay. it's a death which is which is inseparable from resurrection. I think that's the that's point. Right. So it's not, a, it's so, not a destruction, right? It's a, it's a fulfillment. Right. Okay, so back to this page 42. The first quote I made at the top, you know, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Did anything really surrender to God through destruction? Okay, so the answer there is, well, not really, because it's, you know, someone else's animal, maybe. But then he says, true surrender to God looks very different. And he's talking about surrender to God. So that's giving himself away. It consists, according to the Father's and fidelity to biblical thought, in the union of man and creation with God. But how do you unite yourself with God? By opening up yourself and saying fiat like Mary did, let, it, let your will be done. That's how you unite yourself. So yeah, so surrender is, is different from sacrifice in the sense of animal sacrifice. Okay, I get, I get it. The next page, just the middle, just notice those italicized words, exitus and reditus. That means exitus is exiting, going out, ex ire, and reditus is coming back, radiere. And so I'm going to skip a few pages forward here to my page 32, which should be your page 48. Six. 46, sorry. Okay. Uh, the new paragraph there, <clears throat> as we have said in the passages, the parts I skipped here, Christian thought has taken up the schema of exitus and reditus, going out and coming back. But in doing so, it distinguishes the two movements from, from one another. Exodus is not a fall from the infinite, the rupture of being, and thus the cause of all the sorrow in the world, which is an Eastern view sometimes, that, that multiplicity is a fall from unity, and it's infinitude is already a sorrow and sin. No, Exodus is first and foremost something thoroughly positive. It is the Creator's free act of creation. It is his positive will that the created order should exist as something good in its relationship to itself from which a response of freedom and love can be given back to him. So that's the original intent. You know, it's not a punishment. It's not a result of some cosmic sin. Creation is positive. God goes out of himself to create us so that we can freely come back to him. The next page, about a third of the way down, <clears throat> this radius is a return but does not abolish creation. Rather, it bestows its full and final perfection. This is how Christians understand God being all in all. But everything is bound up with freedom, and the creature has the freedom to turn the positive exodus of its creation around, as it were, to rupture it in the fall. This is the refusal to be dependent, saying no to the readiness. Love is seen as dependence and is rejected. So there's Step one of the right exodus is totally positive. We've got freedom. If we reject the invitation, then there's a fall. A few lines down. If sacrifice in its essence, here we are again, is simply returning to love and therefore divinization, worship now is a new aspect. The healing of wounded freedom, atonement, purification, delivers from estrangement. The essence of worship, there it's the word again, of sacrifice the process of assimilation of growth in love and thus in the, the way into freedom remains unchanged. So that was the point in the first place that God creates us, we, we return to him in love. If we turn away in sin, we still have to return, but we need to be healed to do it. So he says, but now it assumes the aspect of healing, the loving transformation of broken freedom, of painful expiation. I mean, no, he's, he's so limpid and so clear and it's so beautiful and it's so true. I mean, it's... 
he does. Well, he just astonishes me the way that he manages to talk about these things, which are not easy concepts to grasp in a way that actually makes it very accessible to those that don't have the theological nous that he has. It's, it's astonishing. The uh, the last page of the chapter there, uh, the middle, all worship is now participation in this Pasch, Passover, Paschal sacrifice of Christ. In his passing over from divine to human, that's the first step, the Son becomes flesh, from death to life, to the unity of God and man. Thus, Christian worship is the practical application and fulfillment of the words that Jesus proclaimed on the first day of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, in the temple in Jerusalem. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And it actually doesn't even say all men. It says all. So it's, it's all men, all things. And then towards the bottom of the page here, the historical liturgy of Christendom is and always will be cosmic, without separation, without confusion. Now, that's an expression that comes from the, the uh, Council of Chalcedon, I think. That's that God and man is you know, without separation, without confusion. And only as such does it stand erect in its full grandeur. So there, there you go. Liturgy, history, cosmos, our worship as Christians unites them both. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today.
We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. I have a question. Is, can, can the incarnation be seen as exitus and the resurrection and ascension be seen as reditus? Yes, it's the second exitus. God speaks his word into the void. That's an exitus. And the intention of that, I believe God's original intention was that a second word would be spoken into a second void, that is the womb of a virgin, to bring that first word, which is creation, inside the second word back to the Father in the Trinity, the ready to. So, yeah, the, the first exodus was meant to simply go back. I believe, had there been no sin, I still believe there would have been, I think incarnation was, was the intention for which he made creation. So there's dispute in theology between one school and the other, but I, I hold the school that is God's plan was to create all positive we respond. He becomes flesh in us, becomes man in us, and brings us all back to something more than natural life, to supernatural life. But once once we sinned, then that second exodus was a entering into the world and incessant says below the world, as it were, into the sinful world to heal it and then bring it back. But the intention was always to bring it back. Is that? Yeah, that's, that's very, clear, that? very clear. Okay. And what, but I think just, so is that what, that's what St. John is doing in the first chapter of his gospel when he begins with in the beginning, he's sort of interweaving Genesis yeah. with, with the gospel, right? That's right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Vivian, anything on this chapter? No, I think no. All right. what Joseph well, asked is, really summed it all up, brought all right. about the so, summing up. <laughs> so this third chapter uh, is the final chapter in this first part on the essence of liturgy. And, you know, we've seen liturgy in life. We've seen the Exodus ready to us, which was meant to be first positive and then became a healing. And now he goes from Old Testament to New. The fundamental form of the Christian liturgy is determination by biblical faith. Now, this is the one chapter where I... For me, anyway, Ratzinger, who was always a master of clarity, had me reading two or three times to try to get the structure. So let's try and do it. I, we may go over it a little bit here because we have, what, more 15 minutes or something like that more to go? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, so the, the first page there, <clears throat> opening word, <clears throat> excuse me. Peace in the universe through peace with God, the union of above and below, that according to the argument we've presented so far, is how we describe the essential intention of worship in all the world's religions. Down a few lines. Worship is the attempt to be found at every stage of history to overcome guilt and bring back the world and one's own life into right order. The next page. Middle of that first continuing paragraph there. The sacrificial system of all the world's religions, including Israel's, rests on the idea of representation. But how can sacrificial animals or the fruits of harvest represent man? Make expiation for him. This is not representation, but replacement. So instead of us offering ourselves to God, we take an animal and offer the animal to God. That's not representation. And worship with replacements turns out to be a replacement for worship. Uh Somehow the real thing is missing. So now he's going to talk about how... The Old Testament led to the new, where 
we are in fact not giving up something else to God, but we're giving up ourselves. So new paragraph here. What then is especially about the liturgy of Israel? And you're going to say two things. First of all, without doubt, the one who is corrected. So even though all worship is directed to some supreme being or the idea of something beyond us that transcended, uh, only Israel in the ancient world had the idea which was pure of the one God. He doesn't create by cutting himself up, you know, or by, you know, uh, a cow being milked or something like that, you know. I mean, God is one. He creates by simply saying, let it be. So then, so that's, so he says first, and then on the next page, four lines, five lines, he talks about a second characteristic. Okay, so what's the second one? Which leads finally by an inner logic to Jesus Christ, to the New Testament. Uh, down a few lines, the New Testament corresponds to the inner drama, that's another important word for him, inner, interior, of the old. It is the inner mediation of two elements that at first are in conflict with one another and find their unity in the form of Jesus Christ in his cross and resurrection. So now we got, he has two characteristics, and the second characteristic has two elements. So now it's, it's getting a little bit complicated. Uh, and it, bottom of the page of five lines, it seems to me to be of some importance that at the beginning of cultic history, Genesis and Exodus placed two events in which the problem of representation is quite clearly addressed. Okay, so now the first half of the two things is also going to be split into two more. Probably should have made a diagram of this, but the uh, first of all, he says, is there is Abraham's sacrifice. Well, on the next page, uh, five lines down, he has given something else to offer instead of his, his son, uh, a male lamb. And so representative sacrifice is established by divine command. So now, step A here is that uh, the Abrahamic, you know, sacrifice Isaac and being replaced by a lamb, that, that's the old kind of representation, this replacement, you know. But now a second point, new, new, new paragraph there, concerns the institution of the Passover liturgy in Exodus. A few lines down from that. The lamb appears clearly as the ransom through which Israel is delivered from the death of the firstborn. Now, this ransom serves also as a reminder. It is ultimately the firstborn itself to which God lays claim. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. So on the next page, three lines down, the Passover sacrifice does not, as it were, stop with itself, but places an obligation on the firstborn and in them on the people as a whole, on creation as a whole. So here he's saying that this, this idea of sacrificing firstborn, which Abraham did, well, Isaac was his firstborn, naturally born son, uh, I mean, from, from Sarah, that when you're sacrificing the lamb to replace instead of the firstborn, that firstborn he sees as the origin of all, of the whole family and of all creation. Uh, okay, so now that is the two parts of, of part one. And now on the middle of that page, the new paragraph, there becomes the second part. But we are still in the Old Testament. It's sacrificial system constantly accompanied by prophetic disquiet and questioning. Here he's going to say that in the Old Testament, you both had this liturgy, this worship, in which somehow we're giving ourselves to God, 
through what he's given us to replace ourselves, either the, the ram for Isaac and the lamb for the Paschal meal. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this disquiet. There's something something not, not complete here. And so about 10 lines from the bottom of that page, he says, thus, temple worship was always accompanied by a vivid sense of its own insufficiency. So the temple is something in the temple worship that is, uh, as I said, disquieting. Uh, and now on the next page, he, he refers a lot to the speech of St. Stephen before he's martyred. The new paragraph there, the whole of St. Stephen's speech is triggered by the accusation that he, he had said, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That's the accusation. Stephen responds to this allegation only indirectly by invoking the line of criticism of temple and sacrifice that runs through the Old Testament. So now, <laughs> now we come, we're, we're in part two now, on the next page, bottom of that paragraph that begins the page, uh, he has three other trains of thought to get across his exposition. Now we got a tripart thing. So this is where I say it, it became a little bit complicated, okay? But I, I think I've been able to tease out uh, what how these are related. So the new paragraph, he says, Moses, he says, Stephen says, made the tent of meeting in obedience to God's command according to the pattern he's seen on the mountain. So that's that's the first train of thought, that the, the, the tent is based on the directions of God. Then, down about eight lines, the transition from the tent with all its impermanence to the house intended to lodge God in an edifice of stone is seen as a deviance, for the most high does not dwell in a house of meeting. So you make the tent, and now we have something permanent, you know. Well, that's somehow, you know, that's, that's deviating from what God's initial plan. And then about <clears throat> ten lines, eight lines up from the bottom, third element here, God will raise up for your profit from your brethren as he raised me up. The essential work of Moses was the construction of the tabernacle and the ordering of worship, which was also the very heart of the order of law and moral instruction, as we saw in chapter 1. If this is so, then it is clear that the new prophet, the definitive prophet, will lead the people out of the age of the tabernacle and its impermanence out of all the inadequacy of sacrificial animals. So that he sees this, this progression, you know, the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle, the deviation, dissatisfaction with the temple, something has to, has to take its place. What, Father, what, what, what does the word tabernacle mean? Tabernacle means a tent. It means tent. It's a tent, yeah. Okay, all right. <clears throat> the bottom of that page, about maybe 12 lines up, here we reach the heart of the Christianological question. So essence, inner thing, heart, these are all important expressions for him. The question of who Jesus is, and at the same time we reach the heart of the question of what the true worship of God is. The prophecy of the temple's destruction, which Jesus is accused of having made, points beyond itself to the incident recorded by all four events of the cleansing of the temple. On the next page, he says... <clears throat> Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus did not say that he will demolish the temple. That version was a false witness born against him. But he does prophesy that his accusers will do exactly that. This is the prophecy of the cross. He shows that the destruction of his earthly body will be at the same time the end of the temple. With his resurrection, the new temple will begin, the living body of Jesus Christ, which will now stand inside of God and be the place of all worship. So that's the beautiful transition from old to new. And about 10 lines from the bottom of that page, the synoptic gospels all report 
that at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What they mean to say is this, at the moment of Jesus' death, the function of the old temple comes to an end. Going to the next page, five lines down. The prophetic gesture of cleansing the temple, of renewing divine worship, and preparing it for its new form has reached its goal. Prophecy connected with its fulfilled zeal for your house has consumed me. At the end, it was Jesus' zeal for right worship that took him to the cross. Down at the bottom of the page, where he sums up here in a new paragraph, we have so far presented a sketch of the inner dynamism of the idea of worship in the Old Testament and have shown that there was an intense awareness of the impermanence of the temple sacrifices together with a desire for something greater, something indescribably new. So that's what, that's what he's done here. Then uh, I'll go two pages to page 60. Page 60. Uh, now there's another theme about the sacrifice being the word. Very first sentence there. The sacrifice is the word, the word of prayer, which goes up from man to God, embodying the whole of man's existence and enabling him to become word, logos, in himself. It is man conforming himself to logos and becoming logos through faith, who is the true sacrifice, the true glory of God in the world. And this recalls to me a phenomenal lecture I heard years ago by Ferdinand Ulrich in Germany. I won't go through the whole thing here, but he talked about you want to share something with someone you love. You, know, you, you give presents, you know, or... Uh, or you write notes, or you, or you, you, you have conversation. But he says, what, what? he's talking to this class of kind of uh, de-Christianized Germans, you know, uh, which describes a lot of them these days, as far as I can tell. But he says, but what if you could, what if you could, you want to give yourself, to, what, what if you could gather yourself up? What if you could take all your dreams, all your desires, you know, all this you are, and put that into a single word and give that into the heart of the beloved, you know? Well, he was talking about the incarnation. He spent 45 minutes doing this, but he was leading them to see what a beautiful thing the incarnation was, that God gathered himself up in his word and gave himself to us. And so worship is our gathering ourselves up as much as we can into a word and offering that word back to God. And then he'll say that, uh, da, 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 new paragraph on that page. The fathers of the church took up this spiritual development they saw the Eucharist as essentially oratio. Oratio is orari, means to pray, to speak before God. Sacrifice in the word. And in this way, they also showed how Christian worship stood in relation to the spiritual struggles of antiquity, to its quest for man's true path and for his encounter with God. And then, let's see here. Uh, let's go to the next page, uh, new paragraph. The idea of sacrifice of the logos becomes a full reality only in the Logos Incarnatus, the word incarnate. The word is made flesh and draws all flesh into the glorification of God. Just give me a few lines. The two themes that Psalm 51 could not reconcile, which were <clears throat> trying to worship and then trying to worship. Psalm 51, which is David's re repentance psalm, is uh, that you don't, you don't want sacrifice, you, you want an open heart, you want obedience. But on the other hand, uh, when we're purified, we can offer two sacrifices. What do you want to sacrifice or not? You, you, you don't, do you want the temple or not? You, you don't want animals, but you want sacrifice. How do you reconcile that? Uh, the two themes that Psalm 51 could not reconcile, the two themes that throughout the Old Testament keep running 
toward one another, now really converge. The word is no longer just the representation of something else, of what is bodily, like a ram would be or like a lamb would be. In Jesus' self-surrender on the cross, the word is united with the entire reality of human life and suffering. There is no longer a, play, a replacement cult. Now the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus takes us up and leads us into that likeness with God, that transformation into love, which is the only true adoration. I'll read a little more in the next book. We finish pretty soon here. The next page, uh, he talks about, uh, now we have, he's going to sum up, uh, just before that number one there on paragraph, some of the conclusions that emerged from what we said. So now he's another tripartite tri tri thing, you know, a little confusing. But so number one, if you like stand for that, the synagogue was always ordered toward the temple and remained so even after the temple's destruction. So the Jews had two forms of worship. One, if you're in Jerusalem, you went to the temple. If you weren't, you went to the synagogue. But, and the synagogue was a sacrifice, where it was a worship of the word. You read the Torah, there was no sacrifice in the synagogue. But that was always ordered to the fullness of the sacrifice, which was in the temple. And also, uh, Father, uh, the, third, yeah. the third worship for the Jews, their domestic church, how much of their worship took place in the home? The praying five times a day and the Seder and the Sabbath meal and all these things that occur in the home. And as a Jewish Orthodox friend of mine explained, that too is all oriented to the temple. The synagogue is oriented to the temple and the worship in the home is oriented to the temple. And then he said to me, and we Jews understand that it is all insufficient and incomplete. Yes. And... I would say that the worship in the home is worship rooted in the sacred scripture, singing the Psalms, for example. Right. And so that and worship in the synagogue are the same type of worship. Yes. Both oriented towards, in fact, in the synagogues always had the little case, if you like the ark, so to speak, where the scrolls were kept. That was always facing Jerusalem, wherever the synagogue was. All right. Uh, that same page at the bottom, about eight lines of Christian worship for its part, regards the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as final and as theologically necessary. Its place has been taken by the universal temple of the risen Christ, whose outstretched arms on the cross span the world in order to draw all men into the embrace of eternal love. So that's, that's the first point. It's also a beautiful sentence. And, and uh, uh, the end of that, number one, paragraph on the next page, the last sentence there. Deeper understanding of the matter is bound to recognize that the temple, as well as the synagogue, entered into Christian liturgy. So this is sort of a uh, he wants to be gentle here because he's German and, you know, the, the evangelicals, the Lutherans are very strong in German and they, they try to come together as much as they can. But what, what happened with the Protestant Reformation is we get rid of the sacrifice that is the temple and kept the synagogue. And he's saying here, well, no, uh, the recognize that the temple as well as the synagogue entered into Christian liturgy. Number two, this means that universality is an essential feature of Christian worship. Skipping some lines, Christian liturgy is never just an event organized by a particular group or set of people or even a particular local church. Mankind's movement towards Christ meets Christ's movement towards men. It's, a, it's always universal cosmic, not just a little group doing something. Finally, on the next page there, number three, well, three and four, 
Accordingly, we must regard St. Paul's concept of logike latreia. Logike is the adjective from logos. Uh, logos is word, reason, understanding. So logike means logos-like, word-like, word form. Latreia means worship. Or divine worship in accordance with logos as the most appropriate way of expressing the essential form of Christian liturgy. Down a few lines. All other definitions fall short. This is important. For example, one could describe the Eucharist in terms of liturgical phenomena as an assembly. When we say ecclesia, church means assembly, right? That is, we gather. All right, we can describe it that way. Or in terms of Jesus' act of institution at the Last Supper as a meal. So, you know, he's very gentle in his criticism. But, but here's, he's basically criticizing people who want to see the Eucharist as only a meal or only as a gathering of the people. But this seizes on individual elements while failing to grasp the great historical and theological connections. By contrast, the word Eucharist points to the universal form of worship that took place in the incarnation, cross, and resurrection of Christ. And so it can happily serve as a summary of the idea of logike latre. Eucharist, of course, means thanksgiving, giving ourselves back to God, and may legitimately serve as an appropriate designation for Christian worship. Basically, you're saying, let's call it the Eucharist, okay? Finally, the last several lines of the page there, and he's going to look forward to the next section of the book. The new temple, not made by human hands, does exist, but it is also still under construction. The great gesture of embrace emanating from the crucified has not yet reached its goal. It has only just begun. Christian liturgy is liturgy on the way, a liturgy of pilgrimage toward the transfiguration of the world, which will only take place when God is all in all. Now, if this were a symphony, I would just, we have standing ovation, right? The whole thing just kind of came together. Yeah. So, okay, I, I, so, I apologize, I bet, for just going on here, but this, this is so wonderful. I just had to keep reading those. So, things. Christian liturgy is also then Reditus. Reditus, how do you pronounce it? Yeah, Reditus, yeah. Reditus. No, also, it's essentially Reditus. Okay. I mean, it, it is the divinization. It is, it is art giving ourselves back to God to be one with Him. Yeah, I was saying also in the sense that. Christ's resurrection and ascension is Reditus, but so is our worship partaking of that, right? Right, but ours is not alongside his. We, we are, we are, in baptism, we die to Christ in his resurrection. We rise in Christ, so it's, it's one act. We are nothing unless we're within his death and resurrection. Right, but, but, we'll, but this is also a quest, so he's there. Uh-huh. And we're not there okay. yet, right? right. So uh, right. in the church militant. All right, that's good. Vivian, any, any, I think I'm, I keep thinking good? of that prophecy of God wanting to take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Yes. And I think in order to love him, in order to return his love, and I think one of the reasons why we see this opening and unfolding and progression through time, through history and everything, is because it really does require a process of deepening understanding uh, being on the way. We don't just overnight, you know, go from being what we are to what we're to become. And to see God's patience with us uh, in revealing this slowly, gradually, it's it just it just makes me want to cry tears of joy. I know. And it's, uh, I think it's maybe the reason why God has let me live so long, because I'm so slow at doing this. I need a longer runway. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of runway to take off. 
All right. So we'll, next yeah. time we'll take a couple more chapters, something so like that. The next two chapters. Yeah. Okay. But be, but be ready. We may go slower or faster. We don't know. All right. Thanks, everybody. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.